I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. It's the 1st of October, 2022. And I am walking along a country path on a nice day, a bit windy, out here in the East Anglian countryside. And things are getting autumnal. That's interesting, Buckles. Shut up. How's Rosie? Rosie's fine. She's not with me today. She wasn't with me last time either, was she? Last time she was too sad to come out because of the Queen. This time she's a bit limpy. We're going to get that looked at, make sure everything's totally okay. Otherwise, she's doing fine. She was very excited the other morning because we got invaded by cows. We woke up, went outside... And there was just cows all over the place in the garden, around the side of the house. They got out of one of the fields, pushed their way through our gate, which doesn't happen very often. And when it does happen, it's usually just one or two cows, rogue cows, and it's sort of fun. It's like, yeah, look, our house looks like a Pink Floyd cover. And a bit surreal and then they they go away and it's all fine. This time I'd say there was about 30 of them, 40 maybe including a big bull big bully bull with a ring through its nose and horns it was laughing at me it asked me what team I support and this cow gang started off by munching all the apples and branches of a uh, series of apple bushes, trees that my wife has my wife has lovingly tended since we moved into the house anyway, when they got bored of the apples they lumbered round the side of the house and into the garden and it's not you know, kind of croquet lawn, topiary, beautiful sculpted flower bed type garden. But it's not designed for cows, really. Or at least not large groups. And there's some young trees down the end of the garden that we planted when we moved in. And the cows made a beeline for the young trees and started giving them quite a bit of hassle. I went down there to try and reason with the cows very cautiously. I've said on this podcast before, you've got to be careful with cows. You know, they've got a lot of legitimate grievances, the cow community, and they are sitting on a lot of rage, more, more than you might imagine. So you don't want to end up as a cow trampling statistic. Eventually a couple of farm blokes turned up 
and persuaded the cow gang to leave. But now the garden and the area around the house is a bit of a no man's land of battle damage and a lot of poo cakes. Poo pats. Cow cakes. And trying to get those cow cakes off the gravel <laughs> isn't nearly as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Anyway, that's the situation here at Castle Buckles. But I hope you're doing well. Now, let me tell you about today's podcast, though, and my guest, the Irish actor, author, comedian, commentator, TV and radio presenter, Graham William Walker, a.k.a. Graham Norton. Here's some naughty facts for you. Graham, currently aged 59, was born and grew up in County Cork in the southwest of Ireland. His comedy career began in the late 1980s after he moved to London where he attended drama school and worked as a waiter, a job that, as you will hear, he didn't enjoy. At least, he ended up not enjoying it. More rewarding in every way was the drag act Graham had started doing at comedy clubs, which involved using a tea towel to impersonate... Mother Teresa of Calcutta. A run at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival brought the act to a wider audience and soon the gates to showbiz began to open. This is great. Yeah? I spent all morning planning my walk so that I would be at that gate when I got to that part. Presenting and acting jobs soon followed. But by the end of the 90s, Graham had established himself as one of the freshest and funniest TV interviewers around with his Channel 4 shows, So Graham Norton and V Graham Norton. They aired between 1998 and 2003. In 2005, Graham made the move to the big British castle where he would present various shows, including annual coverage of the Eurovision Song Contest, a gig he's just announced that he is stepping down from. In the meantime, Graham has interviewed just about every major celebrity in the world. Since he began hosting his multi-BAFTA award-winning BBC chat show, The Graham Norton Show, in 2007. As if all that wasn't enough... He presented a well-loved radio show on BBC Two for a decade from 2010, moving to Virgin Radio in 2021. And he's a judge on the UK version of RuPaul's Drag Race. And he was the voice of Moonwind in the 2020 Pixar film Soul. And he's written two autobiographical books and three novels, four if you count his novella The Swimmer, published earlier this year. The fourth novel proper from, quotes, best-selling king of the small-town Irish mystery, as he is referred to on Amazon, is called Forever Home, and it is due to be published in April of 2023. My conversation with Graham was recorded face-to-face in London town back in March of this year, and we talked about writing and interviewing both of which I asked Graham for handy tips on, and he gave me some of them. We also talked about what Graham learned from his time living in a San Francisco hippie commune in his early 20s. And I explained why I never, ever want to be a guest on his chat show. 
even though at some point I'm sure, I think we're all sure, that they will beg me to go on there. But we began by discussing the fluffy covers that I use on the microphones. I'll be back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now, with Graham Naughty Norton, here we go. Very fluffy plosive mitigators on the mics. It looks like there must have been something on them at some point saying, do not wash, and you wash them. (laughs) (laughs) They they look. It's like a very, very fluffy black cat tail. Or the thing from, um, what's that Star Trek episode? Where they oh, the Tribbles. Yeah. (laughs) Are you a Trekker? No, not at all. Not at all. But I know that. (laughs) Very definite response to that. Mm. No way. Jose. That was one of the shows that that maybe you didn't watch as a youngster. I know you watched a lot of TV and you said you would watch anything that was on. Oh, yes. That's why I know the Tribbles. I would watch Star Trek because it was on, (laughs) but I wouldn't enjoy it. It wasn't one of my faves. No. Uh, You know. Nice to see you. It's uh, nice I, to see you. I think, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we've never hung out or anything, but I we used to see each other in the old Channel 4 days. Yes. We were contemporaries, more or less, and uh, we knew you to sort of wave to at award ceremonies and things like that. Yeah. It was kind of, it was fun back in those Channel 4 days. Yeah. Because um, Channel 4 is in Horse Ferry Road. Have they gone now? Are they in that building at all now? Oh, I don't know. I haven't been there for years. Yeah. I occasionally cycle past, but I think they... I think they are still there. But they're, they're moving... Is it Leeds they've gone to? Is it? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm totally out of the loop. Basically, I don't know... Well, you were born in this country. I came to this country, and I thought, where will I go? London seems the best place. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have never been anywhere else. You know, on the radio, I'm reading out, like, texts from people in places. I have no idea where they are. I'm like one of those really thick American beauty <laughs> contestants who could not point at any of these places on a map. I know nothing about British geography. Yeah, same here. Totally useless. What about world geography? Are you any better at that? I mean, I could probably find Warsaw before I could find Wadlington or, you know. Right. Is that a place? <laughs> Should be. It sounds like what? It sounds like a sweet place. <laughs> but you're well travelled, though, right? So that helps with geography. When you've actually been to places, everything starts to make sense a little bit. Now that is odd that you get the impression I'm well travelled. Are you not? Well, I wish I was more. I feel like I'm, you know, about to be fifty-nine, and I feel like I've gone nowhere. And now the world's so dangerous, you can't go anywhere. <laughs> I feel like I've missed the boat. I just assumed that at some point you would have done Graham does Michael Palin travel type show. Back in Channel Four days, we did do a few. We went to you went uh, to Japan. We went to Japan. We went to China. I think Shanghai. We uh-huh. went to Shanghai. Um, and we went to Mexico City, and I'd had enough. I, I mean, 
it's so painful. Just could you pick up the cup again and just need some covering shots and you know all that. I just I love being in a television studio where the cameras are all pointing at the thing they need to yeah. and everything's lit at the same time. And when the show's over, you walk away. And that you, suits me. You don't love the actual process of traveling and. As a person, I do. Yeah. As a person, I do. I mean, I I like going places. Like I said, I wish I went to more places, but I seem to go to the same places all the time. I just go to Ireland and New York. Well, that's it, folks. Yeah. Um, and I must break that habit. They're, you know, it's a big world. Well, I mean, three places is quite. It's probably enough. I mean, that's enough to <laughs> if the, if you like them, that's probably enough. Like when you get bored with one, you can go to the other one and they're never going to feel so over familiar. You've always got one to go to and you can maybe not go to New York for a few months. And when you go back to New York, wow, look at New York. Isn't New York great? And I guess the danger of traveling is you'll find somewhere you prefer. Right. And then then what do you do? Because it could be further away. There might be fewer flights. It might be more expensive to get there. Yeah. So, yeah, your life is ruined. Now, when I knew that I was going to be talking to you, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this, by well, the I way. Well, I love this podcast. So I'm oh, thanks, man. I immersed myself in all things Norton, even though I was already, you know, I was already a fan, so I was already immersed in a kind of superficial way. I feel you knew enough. Yeah, but then I went deeper. <laughs> God. I got the books, <laughs> I got the autobiographies, I listened to the interviews. Samira Ahmed just blazed through all the questions I was going to ask you on her podcast on she? how I found my voice. She's so clever. That podcast is great. I've been on that, produced by Farah Jassat. I only mention that because when a podcast is so well produced, I always just think, good on you. I'm going to mention that producer's name because it's so nicely put together. It's got archive. It's tight. She's a brilliant interviewer, Samira. And it's sort of like she's not, she's formal, but not too formal. It's all good. Why are British podcasts so much shorter than American podcasts? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think concision is important, right? I think all podcasts should be edited. And who's got three and a half hours to listen to Joe Rogan wanging who's, on? Who's got three and a half hours to sit there wanging on with him? You know, <laughs> thanks, Joe. But, uh, yeah. you know. I mean, the, the thing is that he is a obviously world-class wanger. <laughs> he can wang for America. He does wang for America. And he's very, very good at it. I mean, God, it's it's incredible that he doesn't flag. He does so many shows. He does them at such length. And he keeps he keeps the content coming. And there's no suggestion that he's ever lost or, you know, he never sort of goes, um... What should we do now? Uh, do you want to? Have you got any jokes or anything? There's none should of that. We flick through a magazine together, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is generally the technique that I would employ, and many other Brits would too. I, I suppose that model of super slick presenting is more a that's in the genes in America, isn't it? Don't you think? Well, also I think it's talk radios in their genes. Right. They have you know those shock jocks who just talked for hours, whereas you know. We had radio too. There was a song in a minute. Uh, so, you know, it was never we, – we're not used to people doing those monologues. I mean, even on – I can't remember. Is it LBC here? Or mm-hmm. maybe it's BBC London where they don't have songs. Oh, yes. They've just got people with opinions. Yeah. and But the person who hosts it, they have to have an opinion 
for such a long time before another person rocks up. You know, I like to talk. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. I would maybe get a minute in and then kind of go, well, that's what I think. Well, they take calls, though, don't they? Yeah, but no, they still talk for a hell of a long time before the calls come. Yeah. Do you ever take calls on your show? Uh, no. Oh, oh, actually, I lie. We do. We play a... <laughs> We play a game sometimes, just because we do, and there are callers on that. And it's nice to talk to the people, but, you know, I don't want to know what they think. I, you know, <laughs> I always think, you know, 24-hour news. News doesn't need to be 24 hours. And I think Vox Pops are the lowest form of news. And they now, they're in <laughs> the 10 o'clock news. They're talking to people outside of Clinton Cards about what do you think about the new whatever. It's like, no, talk to a fucking expert. If you've got time to stand around Clinton cards, chances are your opinion isn't very valuable. Uh, It drives me mad. Drives me mad. Norton slams Clinton cards customers. Your opinion isn't valuable, says the talk show host. (laughs) Well, it is when it comes to cards. And they're obviously thoughtful people because they're buying cards. Yeah. What about the things they do on American chat shows? I'm thinking of Jimmy Fallon's show where he plays games and he resurrects old panel show formats and plays those in little segments. Do you like that kind of thing? And is that something you ever considered for your shows? When we started back in Channel 4 days, we used to play loads of games Mm. um, because... Oftentimes, we didn't have guests. There was a lot to say to. And so it was a way of keeping the yucks coming was uh, play some silly game with the audience and involve a celebrity. And, you know, I, most of them involved waving a dildo around. But they were they were kind of silly games. And I, I kind of enjoyed doing them. And I think one of the reasons for doing them is because if you're on five nights a week, they're quite a quick, easy thing to produce. Yeah. And it, there's a familiarity, you know, it's time to play, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, I like this. Or, you know, silly game. I, it's a guessing game I can play along. So it's a, it's, I think it's a clever thing for production to do if you're doing something five nights a week because the chances of having guests who will be able to keep you interested with anecdotes and opinions and chat for five nights a week, yeah. that's... That's slim. Five nights a week. That is a nightmare. You talk about how excited you were when you got your first opportunity to be on that frequently on TV. And I just think, my God, what a maniac. What were you what were you thinking? I suppose because I I guess you were confident. Well, it was I looked to America and I thought that was the nut to crack. Okay. somehow I thought that that Britain should have that as well. That was the way that, it, you know, that was the sort of talk show I wanted to do, you know, stack them high. Um, Wogan was doing it five nights at that point. Was three. It? Three. Three. And, and uh, Jonathan, he did a three-night-a-week one as well. Mm-hmm. So Jack Doherty actually was the first one to do five nights. Right. On Channel 5, and that's where I cut my teeth, and that's I loved that. I loved the kind of the sausage factory of it. Yeah. That you went in every day, and it was a new thing, and you did a show, and sometimes it was a good show, sometimes it was a bad show, but it didn't matter, because tomorrow there's another show.
throughout our conversation, I want you to step in if you ever feel that you can give me a conversational or interviewing tip. Okay. Right. <laughs> and um, or if you, you know, if you want to say, you see, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't really ask that question. I'm genuinely keen to hear any uh, criticism, constructive or otherwise. Okay. Because I mean, Jesus, you are now, whether you like it or not, one of the masters, and you're very good at it. I love watching you. And you may cringe at the. Yeah, I've got to、uh, say, listener, I am cringing because I, I was suddenly aware that my silence made. I was just. I could have been just smiling benignly and nodding. He was smiling going, and yes, Adam, rubbing his tummy. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you for noticing, Adam. Yes, yes. Was, no, I was licking、cringing. his paws. No, he was cringing. And.、Um, Uh, quite right. It's embarrassing. It's cringy to to do compliments like that, but it's true. And so I'm curious to know. There must be things that you know at this point in your career, things that you've picked up over the years that maybe you're not even that aware of. But are you aware of certain things when you're interviewing people now that you that are good to do at the start of an interview? Perhaps things that you've picked up, things that you would never do now that perhaps you used to. <laughs>、um, somewhere on YouTube, and I started watching, and I had to stop. A guy, some sort of body language expert, was picking apart what I do、oh, God. when I introduce the guests and how I greet them and the parts of their body I touch, and you know, and it was weird. And you know, because I don't think about it,、yeah. I had to stop watching it because it was like that's that way madness lies. The only things. What I try to do now is I try to make questions shorter,、mm -hmm. so there's less of me. I rarely put jokes in the questions because、hmm. you want them to be funny. You want them to get the the laughs. Now, if they don't, then you can then seek a little laugh in at the end of their bit. <laughs> you can say something funny there and earn your money. But when I was starting out, I was delighted if I thought of a funny question. And of course, that's not my job. My job is to make them funny,、uh, not the other way around. And it takes a while, for me anyway, it took a while to learn that because it's quite a confusing job. Because I think there's a very big difference between being an interviewer and being a chat show host. And I'm a chat show host, so I think you ask different sorts of questions and you engage with your guests in a different way. And I think the confusion with hosting a chat show is because your name, the name of the person, is normally in the title、mm -hmm. of the show, and you walk out in the beginning, and there's all the clapping and da da da. So it's quite high status, but the minute the guests appear, it's low status because you are shit on their shoe, and you've got to be that. You've got to, no matter who they are, you've got to try and make them. Funnier than you, more famous than you, more interesting than you. That's the gig, and I think that's where sometimes people go wrong、mm. because they think my name's over the door. More of this show should be about me, and I probably am still really bad at that, and probably still there probably is still too much of me in the show. But that's the aim. I don't think there is too much of you. I mean, I think I know exactly what you mean. But I certainly, if I was ever in that position, would be. Well, I like the podcast format because it's more of a conversation. Yeah, you listen to it in a different way. Yeah, it's like two friends talking. I think, but 
I do watch your show for you. I wouldn't necessarily watch it. You know, I could tolerate it if someone was filling in for you. Fine. But it's better when you're on. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I laugh at your asides and your comments. And, and you know, there are times when, when I think, oh, I could handle a bit more, Graham. But I know what you're saying. And it's good, I suppose, to have that level of restraint always in your vision. How about being interviewed yourself now? I mean, I don't suppose it's something you necessarily relish. I've heard you saying that you find interviews a bit of a drag before. No, not even that. I just think I'm a poor booking. You know, I I kind of think, oh, has it come to this? (laughs) So... I'm going to kick off this run with you, I think. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> the, well, that's good. In terms of a graph, it's a very, very good first episode to have. Because that graph is shooting for the stars. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I, it's a bit like having your photograph taken. Mm-hmm. I always feel like I I wish there was more. I wish I could, you know, slip my top off or something. You always, I just always feel like photographers, you know, not... <laughs> They they wish they were taking pictures of something or someone else. So I feel like that in interviews. Have you ever had an interview that you wanted to walk out of or, or came close to walking out of? And if so, why? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think I have. I remember years ago, uh, I was doing some press for some Channel 4 thing. And I was on a mobile phone and they were talking to me. And... They were asking me things I didn't want to answer. Mm-hmm. And what, like personal things? Yeah, I guess it must have been. I don't even remember what the questions were. But all I remember was having this kind of blinding realisation that I didn't have to tell the truth. <laughs> I'm not under oath here. So uh, now in interviews, I often lie. Oh, yeah. Uh, because... Who cares? I don't care. You don't care. The listener doesn't care. You know, unless I committed a crime and, you know, you're doing j'accuse, oui. uh, then, you know, it's just, it's like a comedian, if they tell a funny anecdote, if it's not strictly accurate, if actually a man didn't come up at the end and say that, you don't care because it's it's funny. And I'm glad you made the effort to do that. And I felt like I it was a really... It was a very freeing moment to realise that you don't have to tell the truth. Right. You're not a historical figure in that way. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you are in in, in showbiz I wouldn't write history based on my my reports. What about when you're writing, though? I mean, you have two incarnations of yourself as a writer, one as a novelist and one as a autobiographer. Two yeah. two autobiographical books at this point, So Me and Life and Loves of a He-Devil, both of which I enjoyed, both of which surprised me with their frankness at various points. Are you keeping it truthful in there or how are you playing it? In there, I am keeping it truthful as far as, well, you know, it's my truth. Sure, you're embellishing somewhere and you're editing elsewhere, but... And it's also... It's how I remember things. Uh And I think that's, I'm kind of fascinated by that idea of, you know, when you talk to someone and they'll say, oh, yeah, I used to see you in that bar all the time. And I go, now, if I've been in that bar, I've been in once. But that person must have been there that night. And now in their memory, I've been there lots. And I think I must 
do that as well. And sometimes if you haven't told a story for a long time or just someone asks you a question in a different way, you're telling the story. And as you're telling it, you remember, oh, yeah, this is the version I tell. But of course, this isn't what happened. It's just the version I've been telling for 30 years. And so that's bound to happen in those books. But there is close, there was kind of, you know, the omissions. Mm-hmm. I left things out, but uh, but I didn't lie about anything that happened. And was there any pushback from people involved, from family members, friends, television executives, former lovers? Uh, former lover. Former lover sounds awful, doesn't it? Uh, ex-boyfriend. An ex-boyfriend. Um, because, well, I mean, you must have this when you wrote your book, Navigating what stays personal and what stays private and what... Well, I just thought, Dad's dead, I'll throw him under the bus <laughs> where, when it suits me. You know, I'm being silly, but uh, obviously I agonised over what I should and shouldn't say, but I, I guess I was much freer with him because he wasn't around. Yeah, that I mean, that certainly does give you a freedom. Yeah. Um, and But interestingly, there is an ex-boyfriend who's so irate about that book... And I can't tell you what a rosy-tinted version of events I put in that book, thinking, well, he can't be annoyed with this because this is so not what happened. This yeah. is so uh, such a lovely version of, of what happened. And I paint him in a very nice way, and me in a terrible way. Uh, no, no, still annoyed. Wow. Uh, yeah. Did, Still, and you didn't check before. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't because it because it was so saccharine. What I, you know, uh, not the truth at all. And lots of kind of mere culpa. It was all my fault. It ended. And da 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> did you worry about that though? Did that make you feel bad, or did you just think, oh well, I can't do anything about that? No, it made me think I'm very glad I'm not in a relationship with this person anymore because okay. they're clearly a dick. <laughs> Speaking of dicks, would it be dickish to? <laughs> quote back to you certain parts of the book eh. only because they made me laugh that i'm not trying to like go you said this how <laughs> dare you how could you possibly say that even though it's um you know nearly 20 years later after you wrote the book just things that made me laugh uh, this is on sleeping with younger men oh god some guys prefer older men but that raises a whole series of other problems. Going to bed with them when you're pissed and horny is fine. But in the morning when they spring from beneath the duvet and prance about like an ad for some new product called Pert, I would lie there feeling like Michael Winner. And nobody, not even Michael Winner, wants to feel like that. <laughs> He's good. dead. We're good. We're okay. good. We're allowed. We're allowed. That's good. I like the fact that you put stuff in like that. Yet again, my cock and heart had conspired to make a fool of me is another line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's more sex in my books than there is in my life. <laughs> Do you? I mean, I've read one of your novels. I read Home Stretch last year. Oh. Loved it. Oh, thank you. I'm. I'm. That's my favorite one. Since then, I've read Marion Key's books and uh, talked to her on this podcast as well. Isn't she lovely? Yeah, very nice. So it reminded me a little bit of the way that she writes, i.e., these very enjoyably plotted books a lot of characters but all beautifully drawn also dealing with quite heavy themes throughout were you a fan of hers before you started writing your novels uh, yes i had read a couple of marion keys 
But I guess the comparison is because I set my books in Ireland, which I didn't think I would mm-hmm. because I felt quite distant from Ireland and quite, you know, I, I, I live here. And But because I didn't want to put myself in my books or remind people that bloke off the telly had written this book, I was trying to think of things you don't associate with me that I knew something about. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I knew anything about (laughs) that might have some uh, relevance to anybody else was Ireland in the 70s. So all my books are kind of (laughs) variations on Ireland in the 70s. And how do you go about, and this is a very prosaic question, but I'm always fascinated by the actual process of, of creating a character, creating scenarios Lots of details, for example, towards the beginning of Homestretch, there's a a scene in which a housewife is with her young children. Lots of really nice specific observations about her routines, the actual products and all these things like so well observed. How do you go about creating scenes like that? Um, I think that's the pleasure of writing, that that weird thing that there is a this blank page and none of these people, none of these places exist. And then no matter how bad the book, no matter how kind of off kilter it goes, it may not go where you want it to go, it may not turn out the way you wanted it to, but you have made that world, you know, just by typing on a page, by giving someone a name, by saying what age they are, the car they're driving, it, it, it it just grows out. You're saying you use your imagination. <laughs> what? You mean you don't? Because <laughs> the thing is that if that was me and I was writing that type of thing, I'd spend all the time Googling stuff, Googling what products were around then. And well, I probably I do do some of that. Right. OK. Yeah, I have. I have uh, done that. Yeah. Um, and also to kind of think what was a big film then okay. or what was a, you know, who was the biggest star in the world at that point, that kind of thing. And then how do you go about, are you just sort of freestyling the structure of the thing as well and just telling a story the way that it comes to you? Or do you plot it out the way you might the arc of a TV series or something with all like post-its on the walls? Um, I I haven't gone the post-it note, but the first book, um, it was, I was, doing a book event for the, it must have been for the Life and Loves uh, of a he Devil. And I was at a book event and I met David Nichols oh, know, yeah, uh, yeah. one day. And, um, sure. thing. and I said, I was trying to write a novel. And he said, look, uh, structure it. Have, have a scaffolding. You know, it sounds really dull and uncreative, but trust me, you'll be happy you have this structure and then you can get creative within the scaffolding. And so for the first book, I did that. Uh, and what does that look like? Is um, that like a page or? No, what happened, what it meant was that I I mostly held it in my head mm-hmm. um, that it was, I was writing a, a crime novel, a kind of cosy crime novel. But it just meant that you know, a body is discovered. Then later on, a second body is discovered. Then the detective's life is endangered. And then it is all solved. Boom, boom, the end. And having that structure made me feel secure, particularly for a first novel. It made me feel kind of safe. And then in the other ones, since then, I've never been that prescriptive again. But I've always kind of had 
beats. I've had, I've no, I've seen in the distance. <laughs> There's there's some high land. <laughs> Let's get to that, and uh, and th- that's the work when you're writing is when you're walking across uh, a featureless plain, <laughs> thinking I really need to get to those woods, but uh, you have to fill the time somehow. Uh, you have to get the whole story over there, yeah, and that's the tough bit. Well, th- was there ever a point where you just ground to a halt, or did you keep marching on? I mean, you are now quite prolific. You, you have two fourth, books coming out this four, year? Is that oh, right? no. Well, one is for a charity. One okay. is for uh, the reading agency. Right. So it's for adult literacy. Right. Um, so it's uh, – which was a really interesting – that, again, a really interesting challenge that you've got to write this story that isn't childish. It's a story of an older woman, actually. But the writing has to be very simple. You're only allowed to use a word with three syllables, I think, every two lines or something. Oh, that's or, a good uh, challenge, isn't you know, it? No, it's really – and at the beginning, you feel like your hands are tied behind your back. Mm. And by the end of it, you think everything should be written like this. Yeah. It's so clear. It's so direct. I loved it. Is that Forever Home? No, that's The Swimmer. The Swimmer. Forever Home is the one I'm just finishing now. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's – a, We'll see. Do you like the process, though? Because I, I, I meet very few writers who claim to actually enjoy the business of writing day to day. They like it when it's all done. Um, I guess I'm not a writer. That's why I like it. It's my hobby. Okay. You know, I was talking to Zadie Smith and uh, I was finishing some book. And she went, oh, God, you're so good. I can't write in the summer. And I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. Look at me. I'm writing in the summer. Sadie Smith can't write in the summer. And then I went, oh, that's right, because she's a writer. So she takes the summer off. I'm like picking grapes. It's my summer job. It's this thing that I do as a hobby. So, uh, yeah, so go back to your question about, you know, writer's block or grinding to a halt. I don't really have that luxury because... If I've got some time to write this book, I better be writing this book because, you know, as you know the name of it already. It, you know, I haven't typed the end yet. Okay. And you know what it's called and when it's coming out. It's, be, it's available for pre-order. Yeah, that's quite scary. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> wow. Um, so that gives a certain impetus to your writing. Yeah, definitely. We're halfway through the podcast. I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking. You talk about one of your characters, Finbar, moving to New York and getting a job as a bar back there. Is that something that you did as well? No, uh, I didn't do that. Oh, OK. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm glad you thought I did. Uh, no, I a friend of mine did do that, and he worked in that, in not that bar, but a very similar to bar, so yeah. it was based on it. No, I went to America first. I went to San Francisco. Oh, that's right. And I worked in a, a kind of weird, kind of pretentious cafe. Yeah. It was called Vie de France. Mm. And it was kind of bakery and deli uh, in the financial district in, in San Francisco. But yeah, I, 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 you wouldn't put it in a book. That's early 80s. <laughs> early 80s. What yeah. made you head for San Francisco? 
I was heading for Los Angeles, uh-huh. um, but you got I, lost. I'm, no, I'm such a dick. I mean, this is so pretentious, twenty uh, year old. So I didn't have a map of America. Um, so, but I had a seven day bus pass on Trailways, which was the alternative. There was Greyhound and Trailways. I think Greyhound still exists, but Trailways is gone. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was on Trailways, and uh, I would just get these leaflets you know, of the routes when I was in a bus station. And so I knew that I was looking for routes going horizontally rather than vertically. If they were going vertically, that wasn't going to help me. So I was looking for horizontal routes. Um, so basically, my bus pass ran out in San Francisco. So I never got to uh, LA. Okay. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> but it was a happy accident because I don't know what I'd have done in LA. Yeah. Because I didn't a, know how to drive. LA's a shithole, come yeah. on. And that was you chasing your acting dream no that was me getting out of cork oh okay. i wasn't chasing anything i was running away uh, it was proper yeah it was running away and also now were you i think you're younger than i am but maybe you had this in school did you do the pen pal thing when you were in school no well i don't think so i didn't do anything we didn't <laughs> we didn't even have exchange students or anything like that I mean, did you never do a foreign exchange no did you? Yeah. Where did you go? Oh, I went to uh, Lille du Jardin. Ah, oui. And oh, c- could you speak French? I c- not when I got there. But the good thing is, because I am quite chatty, yeah. and they were really strict, they did not budge Terrifying. on the old Anglais. Yeah, so I did learn how to speak French. And this skill has probably lasted better than speaking French. Uh, learned how to eat cheese. Oh, okay. Because Gilles for it was he, had come to stay with us. And my mother was terrified that this French boy was going to come and stay with us because she'd heard all these horror stories about they wouldn't eat anything and da da, da. Anyway, Gilles arrived. He ate everything put in front of him. Yeah. So at the airport, I remember my mother, like she, really, she held my shoulders and she said, you eat everything. And so when I got to France, I was eating for Ireland. It was my, I was representing the country in the Olympics of food. And fuck, they really pushed me. Like Tete de Veau. Have you ever had that? What's that? That is... Head of... Chopped up bits of a calf's head in aspic. Mm. Like a bit of old nostril hanging out in jelly. (laughs) It's like... I mean... Anyway, but I I get it. Every day is like a bush tucker trial. (laughs) Seriously, it was like that. And like those cheeses that just smell of men's toilet. (laughs) Were you just gagging though? Like, I'm I'm a celebrity. (laughs) No, it was. I I I would squirrel away bread during the meal... So when the cheese came out, I'd be able to kind of put the cheese in the bread and sort of smuggle it into my stomach past my taste buds. Yeah. Um, but I can now eat cheese. And you can probably still speak a bit of French. Oh, really? No. More than I can, mate. Okay. And <laughs> so out to San Francisco you go. And I got you a kind of unimaginative present. Uh, Did you really get me a present? A themed present. Do you like candles? I love candles. Oh, good. I, I struggled to think, what should I get, Graham? I was going to get you some champagne butter. Have you ever had that? No. Oh. Well, candle looks shit now. Um. Well, but then I thought, <laughs> then I thought eating... Just taste, it will just taste of butter, won't it? N- no. Oh, it's you had it? unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Adam, don't tell me that. Well, because I, you don't know, like maybe, maybe you're, you can't eat butter or maybe, I don't know, you know, so I thought... 
candle. You Every- can't go wrong with a candle. Everybody loves candles. Yeah. And it's patchouli. <gasps> Uh, it's a from my hippie past. It's a nice one, diptyque. Nice and uh, yeah, from your hippie past. I was thinking, well, Graham's an old hippie, <laughs> or at least he hung out with some old hippies. Yeah, they're really old hippies. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you. Thank you oh, very man, much. Thank you. But now you're in a in a trap. This whole series, you're going to have to buy gifts for everyone. No, I think it's understood. It's like you've got to have a massive TV show, and then I'll get you a gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm not looking at your gift horse in the mouth. Thank you very All much. All right. Uh, but yes, you ended up with the hippies and obviously having survived the French exchange experience, you're kind of a robust character. So you can take up with whoever. You were not yourself a hippie, right? No. I mean, I led this kind of double life where once you're in the hippie commune, you were a hippie. So I was that in the house. And then... I would go to work in the financial district and go to clubs and hang out with, you know, those sorts of people. Yeah. How long were you with the hippies then? A year. A bit oh, over a year. Okay. Yeah. And I loved them. Yeah. And they were so great for me because, you know, when you're young, you're conservative with a small C. Mm-hmm. You know, everything a bit different is just stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, that's ridiculous. And so... Nearly everything I encountered in this hippie commune to me was ridiculous and stupid. But by the end, I loved them so much. And I thought, when I get back, I am not going to mock these people. Because, it I mean, it's slightly like shooting fish in a barrel. So you just, whatever, I mean, I wasn't going to live my life like that. But there was a lot of good in it. And it really opened up my tiny little closed Irish teenager mind. And it kind of gave me the rest of my life because I'd grown up in a in a system. And I don't mean to criticize my parents, but, you know, we were bred for failure. You know, it was a lower your expectations. Okay. You know, I wouldn't bother dreaming. <laughs> no, don't follow your dreams. And there's a there must be a happy medium. I always think, particularly for a parent, it must be so weird to try and manage your children's expectations because you don't want to limit them. You don't want to say, actually, your painting level is very poor. Uh, (laughs) Your singing voice is not very pleasant. So you want to encourage them. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, don't put every drawing on the fridge. You know, some of them aren't good enough. Um, And I feel like there's a generation of people emerging who genuinely think they can do whatever they want. <laughs> and and that, that can't end well. Also, I guess I'm presuming that these early 80s San Francisco hippies were a different breed to the more sinister mid-70s Manson family type hippie. I mean, I guess they weren't really hippies, were they? Well, they were. And there were, there were some sinister hippies. Yeah. There was a place called the Carista Village nearby and we would occasionally go there for a potluck picnic we were in one called star dance it's changed its name now i don't know what's happened to crystal village but it had a proper guru this guy ran it and um and they had such strange rules you couldn't masturbate Hmm. you weren't allowed to masturbate um i think you had to kind of save it all for the guru and uh then someone went on a trip once and sent back a postcard confessing that they had masturbated while on the trip but 
while they'd been doing it, they thought of nature. They'd been thinking of trees and they found a loophole. Yeah, lakes and things. <laughs> so that became the new rule: you could masturbate. Oh. <laughs> you could masturbate if you were thinking about nature. Yeah. <laughs> Early eighties, you moved to London. I'm doing this like an actual interviewer now. It's good. Your、uh, fifth record, please. <laughs> <laughs> you moved to London. You're、uh, attending the Central School of Speech and Drama, and I don't care about that. I want to know about where you worked as a waiter because I was working as a bartender at the end of the eighties, and I talked to Marion Keys about this because she was working. In Argyle Street at the Video Cafe at the end of the eighties. Was she? Yeah, or eighty six thereabouts. I never knew that. Yeah, but I remember the Video Cafe in Argyle Street. I knew people、yeah. worked there. Right. Yeah. Because everyone sort of knew everyone in the West End a little bit. Because everyone would go around drinking, and you'd yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. I worked for the My Kind of Town chain, so we went to we used to hang out at Break for the Border, and I was at Chicago Pizza Pie Factory, and I was a bartender at Henry J Beans for a while, and all these places. Oh, okay. And everyone would just. To hang around and meet after hours and get hammered and have a great great time. You talk about the fact that towards the end of your experience in catering, you went to a dark place. Yes, the stockroom.、Uh, well, <laughs> that's my joke in the question there. Very good, very good. I, I wouldn't do that. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, how long did you do it for? Off and on, about five six years. Yeah, that's long enough. Yeah, yeah. I ended up doing it for eight. Okay. And when it started, I was so good. I was so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I, I, I was, and I was good at it. You know, I was good at the service industry, and I was nice to people, and I was able to suck it up if they weren't nice to me, and da da da. And then just it's it's not just that the job is hard. It's the fact that it's not what you want to be doing. Yes, you're doing it because you want to do something else. And the longer you're not doing that other thing, you're doing this job, the more bitter and resentful you become. And and also, you know, dealing with customers is terrible, just awful.、Um, Can be. And so, yes, I got out just in time before I killed somebody. Were you at several places, or did you spend a long time at, at one place?、Uh, long. I really was. I, I only worked in three. I think I worked in Smiths, Smiths, which is now Belgo Central,、mm-hmm. uh, just in Covent Garden there on Earlham Street. And then I worked in a place called Melange, which is now gone. It was on Endell Street. And then I worked in the Eagle, which is still there on Farringdon Road, which I cycled past today. Oh, that's a cool place. Yeah. Well, I I was there. My friends Mike Belbin and David Ayer opened that,、um, and so I would do some work there. And that's where I started my comedy. Was in the gallery. There's a gallery space above the pub, and I would do Mother Teresa of Calcutta up there, and then. <laughs> That got taken to Edinburgh, right? So, yeah, and so that wrenched you out of your dark place. It really did. And also, what wrenched me out of my dark place was, I can't remember whether I got fired or whether it shut down, or certainly they got to a very low ebb in terms of business,、mm-hmm. uh, Melange. So I know I wasn't working there anymore. So basically, it forced me to make the comedy work and to you know because my acting career wasn't going anywhere. And of course, it's terrible advice, and I'm so glad I'm not a parent. But you know, to make this work, it's kind of important not to have a plan B. 
mm-hmm. because you'd never stick with your crappy plan A of this life if you had a plan B. You know, after about a year and a half, you'd go, time to crack open plan B. Whereas if you don't have that, you muddle through and you deal with all the disappointment and the rejection and the hopelessness and all your friends kind of going, really? (laughs) You still still think that might happen? And if you do stick with it, it can happen or a version of it will happen. Now, did you hear my stomach going then? No. Okay. Late lunch, no lunch. No lunch. No lunch. Because... Rookie error. That is a rookie error, isn't it? Yeah. So when did you figure that out? Have you you ever had stomach grumbles on a taping or anything? Oh, yeah. My stomach goes... I've vomited in the middle of a taping. (laughs) When did you vomit? Well, I nearly vomited quite recently, but I didn't. I held it down. But I was on a... Sh- I was doing my chat show quite a few years ago. And it was... I remember it was Gabriel Byrne mm-hmm. was on and Letitia Dean. For, oh, yes, from EastEnders. Yeah, for, and it was she. And I was in the audience doing a sort of audience item. And I was standing on the steps doing a bit to autocue. And I was thinking, ooh, well, I don't <laughs> feel very well. I And I'm reading the thing and I'm thinking, can I get to the end of this? I think I can just get to the end of this and then I really need to stop. And then I just said to her, oh, excuse me, everyone, and went round the back. And I mean, some sound person has the sound somewhere of me just exploding, like uh, vomit at the back. Um, but then, you know, you come back on and finish the show, don't you? Trooper. Yeah, come back when you're vomiting. <laughs> Stomach growl. Yeah, that's hardcore. What about, I was interested to know about your other routines and how they have changed. Are there other things that you do now before a show, for example, that you've learned to do over the years that make the show go better? When I started doing stand-up, I had some shoes I always wore, kind of lucky shoes, and then one day I didn't wear them. <laughs> and it's all right. And again, it's a bit like knowing you can tell lies. It was quite liberating thinking, yeah. fuck the lucky shoes. And so I, there was a particular cologne I would always wear before doing the chat show. And then one day wasn't there. I forgot it or something. And that spell was broken. So the only proper routine I do now is... Um, my glass of wine. I mm-hmm. always have a glass of wine. Is that uh, Graham Norton brand? It might be. Oh, actually, yes. The stuff I drink is. I think the guests probably drink something. 
That's New Zealand wine. New Zealand wine. With your wine. name on it. Yeah. And you're oh, going over, and... Over and over and over again. You are blending. Blending. I like wine. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't feel like a, a stretch. No. And you've got pink gin. The gin's from Skibbereen. We've got pink gin, regular gin, and now we've just launched... Thanks for asking. See, I should have brought your present. Yeah. Um, we've just launched marmalade gin. Whoa, I'm having marmalade gin. I know. You enjoyed it on toast. Yeah. Now enjoy it as a toast. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Have you ever had a little too much to drink before a show? No. We, I remember going on a date once with this guy. And uh, he seemed very nervous. I mean, like sweaty and nervous. And... We'd met at some sort of charity function. And then we went on this date and I was saying, you know, who were you at the charity thing with? Oh, my friend. And his friend was a journalist. Mm -hmm. And then as the date went on, she'd obviously given him a list of questions. Uh, Ask Graham Norton these questions when you're on this date. But he was very, very bad at it. So he'd be going, you know, do you have any brothers and sisters? And I'd be like, oh, I have a sister. She's older than me. Da, 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 da. Have you ever been drunk for your horror show? <laughs> I, I think that's one of the questions from your friend. Uh, but anyway, uh, the question is no, as I said to him, yeah. because you'd have to start drinking like really very early to be drunk before, because the show starts taping at seven o'clock. Yeah. So... And I'm, you know, and I'm there for the afternoon. So yeah. I suppose the reason you would drink too much is if you were nervous, though. But you, but do you not get? I mean, you know that you can do it now, so I guess you don't get nervous well, in the same the, way. The point of the wine is about nerves. Yeah, because when I was doing shows or things, I would get very nervous. And even when I was doing stand-up, you know, I would have a drink on stage with me, and it works for me. And that glass of wine you see on the show is the glass of wine I carry on to set. I don't finish it and I carry it off. You know, so it is, it's literally a prop, but it's also a nice little comfort thing. And if I'm ill or on antibiotics or something, I will have apple juice just mm-hmm. so the guests think I am drinking. Right. And the audience think I'm drinking. Is it a policy then to encourage the guests to drink, to loosen them up or... We don't encourage it. We offer them a drink right, because available. that seems polite. You know, would you like a drink on set? Because look at the old Lush. He's having one. And sometimes people come on, you know, they go, no, no, it's water. And then they come on and they see everyone else has a drink. And they go, oh, oh could, could, sorry, is it too late to get a drink? Yeah, they yeah. Go, of course you can have a drink. The The only time it goes wrong, the drinking, is that thing that, you know, I don't, I'm not able to do is if somebody's been drinking prior to the show. Right then the drink we give them could be the one that pushes them over the edge. Uh, But that rarely happens. Occasionally, at the end of the show, you're thinking, I'm glad my show is over, and I'm glad I'm not with you for the rest of your night, because (laughs) it's it's not going in a great direction. Where do you tape it? Uh, Now we're over in um, the old BBC, you know, the donut building. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a favor that I think you may be able to help me out with about the chat show, which is, can I please never be a guest? (laughs) (laughs) Even if I become like 
accidentally super famous in the mainstream, if I'm like in a Marvel film and they want me to do the junket, no. Why? Because I would be one of the people, I've heard you talking about the guests that come on and they're like, oh, I watch the show, this will be fun. And they turn up and then they go, why is it, this show's not as good as it normally is. And it's because they're on it. <laughs> That's what you said. Yeah, it is funny, those people, that you would see them kind of going... It's just it's not so good tonight. You think, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, that would be me. I would just freeze, and uh, I get this kind of rictus grin, and all I can do, I'm just listening to everything everyone is saying, and I'm I'm really laughing, and my brain just totally empties. It's like I I hear a flushing sound as soon as the red light goes on, and that's it. I've got nothing. But you do do shows. No, not really. I do. I used to do um, Dictionary Corner on 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. And that was fine as soon as Jimmy Carr would look over every now and again and sort of hopefully say, uh, you know, what do you think of that, Adam, kind of thing. It's like, you know, if you want to do a joke here, off you go. And I would literally say, I've got nothing. (laughs) Thinking the first time I said I've got nothing, because I did say it more than once, I thought maybe the audience would laugh. But they didn't laugh. They just felt they could smell my fear. Okay. And that's the thing. Like people, they, it's a stink, isn't it? But also that environment, like proper working stand-ups. Yeah, yeah. got jokes and da, da, da. I mean, that's brutal. Yes. But what do you do, though, when you have a guest and you can smell the reek of fear? Um. What's funny is I forget, you know, because I do it all the time and da da da. Um, I forget that it could be an intimidating environment. Right. Because, you know, I don't think I'm intimidating and, you know, and the audience are lovely and nothing bad's going to happen. I'm not going to ask you any hard questions. You know, you're not going to lose money. There isn't a cash prize at the end <laughs> that you mightn't get. It's lovely. I tell you you're brilliant in the thing that you're in, no matter what the evidence to the contrary is. And, uh, you know, you, somebody's put some makeup on you. How nice. And then some nights I'm there and I look across and I go, oh, no, they're they're so they're scared. Yeah, faces twitching. Yeah. And you can tell they're just they're thinking, I'm not speaking. I'm not speaking. Of course, now it's too late for my pep talk, because if if I'd noticed beforehand you can give someone a pep talk and kind of go, one, it, don't be afraid of speaking because if you say something terrible, we'll cut it out. Right. And But also, don't be afraid of silence either because that won't be in, if you know what I mean. We're not going to cut to you not speaking. Yeah. We'll cut to you when you talk. So uh, you will be fine. And also, you will get your moment, you know, who, no matter who you are or how on dazzling your personality might yeah. be, there will be the moment when we turn to you and kind of go, now, new book, blah, blah, blah. And or, you've done a pre-interview, right? Some, you, somebody has. Okay. I like it when you tee them up for the anecdote and they can't remember what it was. <laughs> They're like, what was it? What? No, why I like when I tee them up for the anecdote and then they tell a different one. <laughs> that really, I love that because then it's an anecdote I don't know. I don't know what this story is. I yeah. don't know where we're going with it. I, you know, and, and they also, I like the way they seem so surprised that I want them to tell it. It's like, well, I would be surprised because we didn't want you to tell this, but we're, you know, fine that you are. And how about when you have 
seen a film that they're promoting or a book or an album or whatever it is, and you really didn't like it, do you just tough it out and totally pretend you did? Or do you just think, oh, no, I, I, I can't lie. I can't betray my <laughs> principles of taste. I must uh, just be No, vague. you tell everyone yeah, it's it was brilliant. Great. Tell everyone it's brilliant. You know, my opinion is meaningless, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I like everything. And then I guess you have to be careful not to say things like, and I really liked it. Like, I genuinely like it. I do sometimes do that. Okay, right. I do sometimes do that, yeah. Um, so uh, that's when we know that's the clue. But also, what's so stupid is that the publicists or the studios or whatever insist that I see all the films. Mm-hmm. It is so much easier to talk to someone about a film you haven't seen because then there's potential there's a potential in the air that maybe it's not a big pile of shit. <laughs> maybe, although it sounds very odd, so you pay a man with four feet. Um, <laughs> you play feet for hands. Interesting. So we can look each other in the eye. Yeah. Whereas if they know I've seen it, it's like we've had sex and one of us owes the other money or something. It's a weird awkwardness. And I have to look at them and da, da, da. I think it was was it Jessica Chastain once she was, it was the show was over and I just said that Tom Hiddleston was on the next week in some film uh, that she was also in she was on promoting a, a different film but next week Tom Hiddleston was on to her and so she was leaving the set and I said something oh and uh, I saw the blah 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 you were in and she went oh I'm so bad in that and I went, oh, you know, it's all right. You're a she went, no, I, I play a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, busted. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there are moments on the show that make the edit that, well, I guess everyone's going to respond differently to certain things. But there are moments where I'm just like, no, well, well, it's it's through the finger moments. You know what I mean? So you mentioned Tom Hiddleston. I mean, Hiddleston doing De Niro to De Niro was very much a through the fingers moment <laughs> in Castle Buckles. <laughs> he is like, I should preface this, obviously, by saying what an actor the guy is. He's a magnificent actor. What an admirable degree of confidence that takes De Niro seemed to find it funny. He wasn't, was he, was he okay with it? Well, I mean, it's one of those things. It must be like having a catchphrase being Robert De Niro, walking through life as Robert De Niro. People must do you to you all the time. I mean, waiters in restaurants, cab drivers, I imagine. Not to De Niro, though. You would be scared, wouldn't you? Would you? I don't know. I just think you do, like, I mean, generally you shouldn't really do impressions to people's faces. Yes, I think as as a general showbiz rule, it's it's not a great idea. Showbiz or anywhere else in the world, I think. It's an odd thing. But De Niro, it's like, wow, you picked the guy from Taxi Driver to do an impression to who's like known as a fairly, you know, he's not a giggly guy. 
No, he's not. I mean, he's very benign. Right. I think because he plays kind of doer, threatening people, uh, you kind of think he's more frightening than he is. Mm -hmm. And so there is something intimidating about having him sat there. He has an energy. But then you realize it's a benign energy. Okay. Actually, he's just enjoying himself. He's looking around. You know, once on our show, he was having such a nice time. He did try to tell an anecdote. <laughs> and uh, we had to cut it out because because he he did that thing of uh, just losing his way in his own story yeah. of kind of and was it was it August I can't remember but I was in the place or no were they no I think no they'd begun and it was one of those stories and it started quite strong because he he something about this story he thought was going to work was going to fit into the conversation and uh, and then it just dribbled away to nothing and thought, that's why Robert De Niro doesn't tell anecdotes he's yeah. just not very good at it yes especially if he's got Tom Hiddleston doing an impression of him <laughs> you just get Tom Hiddleston to tell the anecdote instead <laughs> you could have given him the bullet points no but you're right there is a, a level of confidence about that that's sort of uh, breathtaking yes it is breathtaking <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are there are worse things than that on a cutting room floor. Are there? Yes, that's all I'll tell you. I'm there sure are, there's. I can't name any names, but there's like when I finally retire, I will have to go into the you know the big bin of uh, edits, and there's one particular thing I want to keep with me forever. And, it, <laughs> and it, oddly, it is someone doing an impression. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's so bad. <laughs> It's amazing. Is it a Brit? No. <laughs> do they have... I mean, how come it doesn't get out? Do, do the audience have to sign NDAs then? No. 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 I mean, because describing it to someone would never be what it was. Okay. And, for, and how long it went on for. That, <laughs> that, that's what was key. <laughs> was the commitment. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. What if you do got me boxed in? I'm not going to put you down. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Graham Norton, of course. 
very grateful to Graham for his time. And no, I didn't find out what the name of the actor who did those excruciating impressions was. I didn't actually ask Graham. It didn't seem appropriate. I thought, well, he would have told me if he felt comfortable. Who do you think it was? I'm guessing Chris Pine. I don't think it was Chris Pine. But I've just been immersed in the world of Chris Pine this week because I was doing a bug show last week in London. Thank you if you came along. And in the course of putting that show together, there's a lot of Googling and a lot of searching through the internet and YouTube for various bits and pieces. So I was exposed to Spitgate, the, yeah, Hull Spitgate um, hoo-ha. You know about Spitgate, right? Or do you? I don't know. You see, this is the thing. I have got no idea to what extent people know about things like Spitgate. Because I'm not on social media anymore, so my compass is way off. Certainly the audience at the BFI seemed underwhelmed when I started riffing on Spitgate. I had a small section in the presentation that was a, a short overview of the Spitgate phenomenon and the response on YouTube, particularly comments from YouTubers beneath videos that claimed to show... Uh, who's the guy? Jacob single brush uh, Johan Troubadour what the fuck is his name Harry Styles and he was at a premiere for this film Don't Worry Darling directed by Olivia Wilde that Styles and Chris Pine and other stars from the movie have been on the promotional trail for I'm giving you an overview of Spitgate here you're probably groaning like the audience at Bug. So, start, there's a lot of backstory which I'm not going to go into about possible tensions between director and cast and blah, blah, blah. But this bit of footage of Harry Styles at a premiere of the film, I think in Venice, arriving to take his seat, shot by a member of the audience on their phone, sitting nearby... Styles comes, takes his seat, Chris Pine has already sat down, and there's a split second when Styles moves his body in a certain way, kind of leans over Chris Pine before sitting down, adjusting his jacket and sitting down, where it looks as if he might have just gone and spat into Chris Pine's lap. But the thing that sells the idea that he spat is Chris Pine's look which is perfectly timed. It looks as if he's following this gob of spit down into his lap and then just going, oh my God, did that just happen? Looking up with a kind of bemused grin as if he is just amazed that something so appalling could have happened in public. Harry Styles sitting down, looking totally innocent. Anyway... The thing about the video is that it's absolutely obvious he didn't spit at Chris Pine. But this is a point of controversy on the internet. 
and people are getting genuinely furious about it. I'm sure some of them are pretending to be genuinely furious, but others are absolutely in a 100% genuine lava. So I did a couple of silly videos and a song written from Harry Styles' point of view about why he did spit in Chris Pine's lap and things like that. Audience at the BFI did not lose their minds over it. I would say the response was muted. And there could be several reasons for that. Reason one, they may just not have found my take on the whole thing very funny. Reason two, they could have felt that it was all a bit late, or even very late. Spitgate blew up, as far as I'm aware, as a viral phenomenon about three or even four weeks ago now. Reason three, the majority of the audience may actually not have known anything about Spitgate because they move in more elevated media circles. Might not have made it onto their news radar. You know what I mean? Reason four, they did know about Spitgate, but thinking about it or commenting on it was so far beneath them, especially with so many other serious things happening in the world, that they assumed it would be beneath me too. Wrong. I mean, obviously it is very trivial compared to everything else in the world, whether Johnny Sagebrush gobbed in Blondie Lion Hair's lap. But it didn't stop a lot of uh, very passionate speculation on YouTube, and that was what I was trying to share with the audience. Anyway, made me laugh. Spitgate detour. Graham Norton, very grateful to him. I really do recommend his books. He's a great storyteller, and if you like Marion Key's work, I think you'll also get a kick out of Graham's books. Hey, speaking of books... I wanted to give you a recommendation for a book I've been enjoying recently, also related to the podcast, because it is by past podcast guest John Higgs. Earlier this year, you may have heard the episode I did with writer John Higgs, and at the end of our conversation, he said that he was working on a book about James Bond and the Beatles. And my interview with him was recorded almost exactly a year ago. So he was working on that. Anyway, the book is now out. It's called Love and Let Die, Bond the Beatles and the British Psyche. And John's thesis in this book is that you can see the conflict between British working class liberation versus establishment control and sort of old-school establishment values illustrated in many elements that make up the Beatles and their music and Ian Fleming's James Bond franchise. And John's approach to the whole thing, his thesis, as it were, turns out to be a brilliant way of shedding new light on a, a couple of British cultural phenomena that have been written about a lot. And whether you agree with John's thesis or not... It's a really entertaining and thought-provoking book that weaves together 
elements of psychology and social history, as well as uh, some good deep-level trivia. Right, that's sort of it for this week, I think. I'm going to get back and check on Rosie. I'm aware that in the last episode of the podcast with Anil Seth, I said that I was going to post a Dozy Rosie video of her on the sofa um, in 4K, I think I promised. Well, obviously I haven't done that yet, but I will. I promise. I mean, it's just a sort of fluffy blob on a sofa that doesn't move for quite a long time. But it's not, it's relaxing. And you can hear the sound of my son playing the piano in the background. You know, might take your mind off things for a little bit. Okay, thanks very much indeed to Rachel Holmberg and the staff at the Universal Building in London who made us very welcome for our recording. Thanks very much indeed, as ever, to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his invaluable production support. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for this podcast. Thanks, finally, and most of all, to you for coming back and listening right the way through to the end. I do appreciate it. Until we're next together, take uh, excellent care. Autumnal hug. How about it? Hey. Good seeing you. Oh, um, I nearly forgot. I love you. <laughs>